This is Two Gringos with Questions, a series of interviews featuring political and cultural leaders from across the Americas, brought to you by the Canadian Council for the Americas and Global Americans. Well, dear listeners, um, thank you for listening today. Before we get to today's episode, which we think is a one of the finer ones we've done, um, there is an announcement we have to make. And We've, Guy Mantel, who's the new and young dynamic executive director of Global Americans, will, is joining us for this announcement. Hi, Guy. Hey, Ken. How are you? I'm doing great. I, the announcement we have to make is that this is, in fact, the last episode of Two Gringos with Questions, uh, but it's just the beginning. It, it, our, the conversations will not end. Isn't that right, Guy? That's right. That's right. And I think this is going to be uh, the continuation of, of, of ventures big and small with Global Americans and, and the Canadian Council for the Americas. Um, and it's been a real privilege um, on behalf of Chris and Global Americans to be a part of this, uh, to have such a loyal audience uh, that is tuned in each week to, to Ken and Chris um, and that has heard them engage with some of the biggest issues of our hemisphere. Well, thank you, Guy. Of course, we, we've loved doing it with you and Chris and Global Americans. Absolutely. Yes, there's room for and there will be plenty of uh events that we do together uh, extensive collaboration uh and and the good news i think beyond that for the listeners who have grown as as we all know from looking at at the numbers and have diversified is that both global americans and cca will be doing their own podcast going forward and uh, we'll let everybody know about that what many ways no guy yeah, absolutely. We'll be uh, once ours goes live, uh, we'll be putting it up on our website and tweeting it out. And the same thing, once the Canadian Council for the Americas has theirs go live, uh, we'll we'll be tweeting that out as well. Yep, great. And we'll, we'll even put a, a notice on the Two Gringos Twitter site. So anybody who wants to listen to either one of them, hopefully, will be well well notified. The Canadian Council website, which everybody knows, is ccacanada.com. And guy, you want to global and and their Twitter account is at CCA Canada. Guy, how about Global Americans? Yeah, so our website is theglobalamericans.org. That's T-H-E, globalamericans.org. And our Twitter account is latamgoesglobal. Okay, well, from here, on to bigger and better things together and in some individual pursuits as well. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you. Hi, Chris. So in a reversal of roles, Ken, let me ask you. Who are we speaking to today? Well, Chris, I know you're looking forward to this as much as I am. We're speaking with Simon Cooper, who is the much applauded, much awarded sports writer for Financial Times of London. But I suppose calling him just a sports writer does not do justice uh, because he writes about world politics, uh, local politics, as it were. Uh, he, he's an anthropologist by training from Oxford, and he brings that discipline to his writing of sports uh, and his first love is football. And so hopefully we'll get into a broad range of topics that he's written about uh, related to sports primarily, uh, and uh, a little bit about the book he's working on now, the extensive in-depth look, inside look, at the team uh, football club Barcelona, and uh, to make it more timely, the recent contretemps that uh, its star player Leo Messi has had with the front office. So. Let's go to uh, it. Simon, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Um, 
the thinking man's guide to to not just football, soccer, sports in general, and and your writing is goes way beyond that into a number of areas. Uh, and anyone who reads the Financial Times will be well aware of that. But I think we would like to start off a bit in in the football field, and maybe stay a lot in the football field. But you wrote a very interesting piece in June called "Why Football Matters," and there were a lot of interesting insights you had on that. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you were trying to argue in that column. I'm trying to say that fandom of soccer and other sports is something we should take seriously. I mean, it's a big part of our societies and it's a big part of people's emotional lives. And it's often misunderstood as it's just hero worship or fans just want to win. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a search for community. And the origins of soccer fandom in Europe, where of course it starts, is these big cities arise in the Industrial Revolution, Manchester, Munich, Barcelona, Turin, and you have these hundreds of thousands of peasants sucked in. They've lost their society, they've lost their church, their parish where they knew everyone. They're in this unfamiliar city where they're completely unrooted. People are dying around them. And the first place where they find belonging is at a football club. So if you are a Manchester United fan, that's your identity. It connects you with the city. It connects you with other fans. And I think to this day, sport has that kind of function of community. And we have to take that especially seriously in this time when, you know, other kinds of community are famously dying, the era of bowling alone, uh, less attendance at church, less belonging to trade unions. Uh, people are becoming increasingly atomized. And so sport is, is much more important than we give it credit for. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's great. And um, being a, an avid sports fan myself, I, I understand that. There's actually a, a study done a couple of years ago that avid sports fans are actually less likely, less prone to, to uh, depression because of that sense of belonging. So Agreed. But now the question is today in COVID, um, does, is that removed when fans can't pack the, the stands as they used to, when they're reduced to watching uh, these sports on TV? Is a little bit of that sense of belonging diminished? Well, most fans were never in the stadium. It's, it's always been a minority sure. of people who actually show up in the stadium. But there's this virtual community. And in you know, the last 10 years, people watch on TV with a second screen. So while they're on TV watching, they're also on social media talking to other fans about the game and exchanging in-jokes and complaints and, and solidifying their community. And, you know, all social media has an unhealthy aspect as well, but also a, often a healthy aspect. So I think that the community exists and it's virtual. Yeah, it, what's interesting about it uh, Simon, one of the things that you say in, in your piece is that fandom is more than a leisure time pursuit. It's a primary source of identity. I think you just sort of mentioned that. Um, but you also go on to say it, it, fandom helps people say who they are. And it, you also say it's a crutch to get them through life. So it sort of goes back a little bit to way back when, um, when the, the sport first started, I suppose, and others have commented along the way about sports in general, as it being you know, an opiate for the people, which you know, on one hand you could say, okay, well, it's an opiate, so it gives some enjoyment. On the other hand, 
you know, it signifies that it, it's filling in for something, some void much, much deeper, right? And to sort of placate the, the masses as it were. Do you, do you see it as a double-edged sword? I think the opium for the people argument really uh, demeans the people who like sport. The idea that they are these kind of helpless victims of what the controlling classes feed to them is a, uh, an insulting distortion of the way people actually think. People make decisions in their own lives and they get not just a sense of community, but also a sense of the higher of uh, connection with beauty. When you watch Michael Jordan, when you watch Messi, for many people that's their closest brush with beauty and with genius. Yep, and yep. to say, oh, you're just doing it so that the upper classes can keep you docile is also to misunderstand that, that, you know, football in particular has many uses and often it's used against the dictator because the last thing that a dictator wants is 80,000 people gathered and shouting what they want in the anonymity of the stadium. It can be a very frightening thing for a dictator. Uh, I always think of Ho Chi Minh uh, founding the Vietnamese Communist Party at a secret meeting in a Hong Kong football stadium during a match because it was a, a place where you could uh, be quiet where you could be unseen. I think of Iranian uh, football fans, men and women, dancing in the streets together, defying the religious police after Iran's big victories in football matches. I mean, when the crowd is in the streets of its own volition, that is a scary moment. Every society, however democratic, has people who love sport. I mean, I think if you're looking for a society which we would probably see as the epitome of a social democracy where the citizen has a voice, well, Germany would be a good example of that. But in Germany, uh, big World Cup matches are watched by close to half the population, many of them, you know, doing this kind of um, public viewing. In German, the, the, the German word for it is das public viewing, where you watch with up to a million people at the Brandenburg Tor uh, mm -hmm. for a big match. So it's not that this only exists in North Korea. This is what people choose to do. But there's always been a heavy political component to sports, right? You talked about, well, what well, you just talked about, the dictator. I mean, it's a, a little bit the story of Barcelona against uh, versus Real Madrid, no? I mean, historically, or even Atletico Madrid, right? Atletico de la Fuerza Aérea, you know, there's, there's always been a bit of that imbued, certainly uh, laced through a lot of, uh, professional football, no? There has always been this aspect also of the region against the capital. Yeah. And you can find that in many countries. I mean, East German football is Dynamo Dresden against Dynamo Berlin in the old days. And, you know, the most famous example, you're right, is Barca against uh, Madrid. On the Catalan side, though, I mean, I'm writing this book about Barcelona, so I got very deep into the club. Uh, the club opened a lot of doors to me, being very open. It's been fascinating. And one of the kind of Catalan myths is that Catalonia was against Franco and Madrid was for Franco. And therefore the match is, you know, democracy versus Franco. Mm. And in fact, Catalonia was divided during the civil war and Madrid was divided. Madrid at one point um, had, a, uh, you know, the anarchists and uh, communists were dominant there during the civil war. Mm -hmm. So I, I reject the idea that Barca stands for freedom against dictatorial Madrid. But certainly that is in the heads, has always been, of a lot of Barca fans at this match. Maybe more so in the democratic era, weirdly, than it was actually during the Franco era, when the club was often controlled for long periods by Franco's appointments. Does, does the, 
the decline of sort of franchise players, if you will, sort of now the rise of free agency, certainly in the NFL, where you don't have like a Dan Marino or Troy Aikman and associated for their basically their lives with a particular team. Has that sense of spirit of, of um, you know, maybe even misguided history of a team uh, and its connections to its players, has that been diminished or does that still endure despite the, 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 the flexibility of the players and their mobility? I actually think the players are, are unimportant in this and so are the owners. <laughs> and the, the relationship of fan to club goes, is much longer and goes much deeper than that. You know, if you're a fan, you can be a fan of a club. There's not only one club fans. Many people have relationships with various clubs. But if you, you know, love one club, which some people do, that relationship can go on for 60 or 80 years. And in that time, you know, players will come and go. I mean, Seinfeld says, really, we're just supporting laundry because we're supporting the shirts on the players' back. You know, the player will be playing for the rival a year later. So that doesn't really seem to dim people's affection. And you see that when, you know, some horrible oligarch buys your club, you know, people, people stay with the club regardless because they're not supporting the oligarch. Uh, what about, say, for example, talk, going back to the issue of dictatorship and the fear of fans, in Belarus, Lukashenko obviously allowed um, uh, soccer to continue, football to continue. Was that a question of bread and circus for him? It certainly didn't serve him very well in the elections. How does that playing out? Well, Lukashenko took the view that the coronavirus was a hoax and that it could be solved with uh, going to the banya. And so life continued in full in Belarus. Uh, football was part of that. At one point, you're right, it was the only football league still going in Europe. So I don't think it was so much bread and circuses as this very characteristic populist denial of the virus, which um, he took to great lengths, which because unlike in Brazil and the US, he, the populists, where the populists had opposition, he had none. Yeah, yeah. I think if any country continued its soccer, it would have been Brazil. But, and Bolsonaro, obviously, one who also downplayed. But that's another issue. Yeah, Simon, the, going back to the fandom thing, I just find that whole thing really fascinating and, and the sense of identity. The, you know, Bill Buf Buford put out that widely read book among the thugs, I guess in the late 80s, early 90s, about the heyday of hooliganism in, in well, it was across Europe, but particularly, you know, his focus was on what was going on in England. Is that related to the identity issue and in the fandom issue? Or is that just sort of some deviation that sort of has popped, that popped up on its own and was controlled in certain ways, you know, certain measures they adopted to deal with uh, retrofitting stadia and, you know, taking out seats, et cetera, et cetera. What, how does that fit into that? And then I guess the, the question that goes along with that is, the if it's not the rise of hooliganism per se certainly not like in those days certainly seeing a lot of rise of the neo-nazi stuff that you know the nationalist sentiment that's you know that's always been there but seems to be at least people seem to be feeling it's it's way more prevalent than it had been a number of years ago what's your view on all of that I think that, I mean, hooliganism takes different forms in different countries. So in Argentina, I think it's partly under, best understood as, as mafias, you know, working in the economic interests of, of the members and, and, and also as thugs for hire for club presidents, the Barras Bravas. 
Yeah. But in England, I think it's best understood as a youth culture, uh, a fashion like punk, say. And so the time that Bill was writing about the 80s, that was the fashion for young men. And it, it's linked to kind of ideas of masculinity. It's linked to, you know, the idea that British men fight in wars. You know, it was these, these young men had grown up with these stories about World War II that their grandfathers had fought in or their fathers. And they wanted their version of that. So kind of invading foreign towns and um, causing mayhem was their expression of British masculinity. And it eventually went out of fashion. So, you know, football hooliganism nowadays is much written about, but in Europe, very rare in evidence. I've, I've hardly ever seen any of it at football grounds in the, you know, 30, 40 years I've been going. And it was partly pushed out by safer stadiums but that just whole that whole culture died, and the the rare hooliganism you get now in England around the England team is usually done by often done by men of that generation. So you get blokes in their fifties who are mm. kind of reliving their their twenties in the nineteen eighties now. You know when they throw chairs in a Belgian city. So if you see it as youth culture, I I think it makes more sense. As for the um, you know, far right aspect that has always been there with football, uh, a very small fringe of football fans. So at Leeds United in the 1970s, the National Front, the far right movement used to recruit right. among football fans. Mm. And those were the days when you had racist chanting, uh, very common. That still happens a bit. The racist chanting in Eastern Europe and in Italy, we pay a lot more attention to it now because it's now seen broadly by the authorities and by the media as unacceptable, as shocking. Whereas, you know, I remember games in the 80s when the crowd throwing bananas at a black player was just seen as part of the folklore, part of the carnival of football. Mm. Amazing to think that, but mm. it was not seen as something that needed to be stopped. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago, or maybe it still persists in, you know, you, um, you're Dutch, but in, in the Ajax games, and there was, there's sort of, there was a sort of a strange dance with anti-Semitism that was going, right? And one of the cheers were, People would make a hissing sound as if it were the, the gas chambers and the like. I mean, there was always that aspect plays into it as well, no? Yeah, I grew up in Holland. I'm, I'm not Dutch, but I uh, grew up with Dutch football. That's right. Oh, okay. My, yeah. my um, kind of fans game. And the oddity is that Ajax was seen as a Jewish club. Uh, and before the war, until, you know, until the disaster, uh, Amsterdam was 10% Jewish and um, the area around the Amsterdam, the Ajax ground was quite Jewish. The Jews lived in Amsterdam East and the Ajax had to take a tram there. So Ajax always had quite a strong Jewish presence until the war. And after the war, the few remaining Jews in Amsterdam would gather around Ajax, some as players, as sponsors, as fans. And so other Dutch clubs, um, they used this and they said, well, Ajax is the Jewish club and so we're going to do this kind of anti-Semitic hissing, etc." And that was very uh, strong and odious from about the 80s until I would say about 10 years ago. It has now started to fade. I would say it was tremendously ugly, but it didn't represent so much, you know, actual far right or anti-Semitic movements, which have never, you know, there's never been an anti-Semitic uh, political movement in Dutch politics with the exception of the war years. So Jews have lived in Holland for more 350 or so years. And the pre-war fascist party, like in Italy, was not particularly anti-Semitic. That was just not an issue that they took up until the Nazi invasion.
So I, I don't think that this betrays... So sometimes football is just football. It has its own traditions. Mm. And what the fans chant is really about football and is about the rivalry between the clubs. So if you compare it to Barça Real, Barça Madrid matches, often, you know, when people use Catalan uh, symbols, really it's a way of supporting Barça. Catalonia is a bit different because you now have this genuine independence movement, which is riven Catalonia itself, you know, 50% independence, 50% not. And a lot of the players were, were somewhat vocal during the, the referendum yeah. in the last several years as well. I mean, starting with Guardiola as coach and some of the players as yeah. well, right? So, Guardiola and Piquet are being quite vocal about yeah, it. Right. to be a referendum, right. although they're not necessarily for independence. But yeah. players who, uh, like Sergi Busquets, come from a Spanish-speaking background, they don't feel as free to, you know, come out and say, well, actually, I, you know, I'm quite happy being in Spain. That, that's not a socially acceptable thing to say. You know, a better example of where football is just football now is Glasgow. So the Rangers-Celtic matches used to be, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. Mm -hmm. But now almost nobody in Glasgow goes to church or believes in God. And so when <laughs> Rangers fans sing anti-Catholic songs or Celtic fans sing, you know, pro-IRA songs, they're not really talking about religion or politics. They're using this ancient language to express their love of their club. It's, it's much more, it's become a football rivalry which still uses some of the language of religion, but it's not really a religious rivalry anymore. I think something similar has happened in Holland where um, this anti-Semitic language, which is odious and, you know, people chanting it should be banned from grounds, but they're not really making a political statement. Mm. Let, let's look at this from the other angle now. The, uh, the, the issue of um, discussing and using um, sport uh, to bring attention and promote solidarity with uh, oppressed minorities, um, obviously in the United States uh, with the NFL and the NBA, we've seen similar in, in cases in football here. Um, you know, this, is, this goes back obviously decades. I'm thinking to, I'm, I'm a runner, I'm thinking the 1968 Mexico City Olympics with the sprinters. Um, what, um, what is your sense of sport generally as a mechanism for social integration, as a mechanism for raising public awareness and even support? You know, we, we often think about you know, the, the, the South as being obviously higher rates of, of racism uh, and white supremacy. But of course, you know, they all rush to their SEC football games where the large numbers of team, teams are populated by African-American athletes. Um, what's your sense of sport in that and, and, and its power to be able to change the national discussion now, um, inter well, uh, globally on race? I mean, I don't think sports is decisive, but it definitely has a role. And there are people that only NBA players or European soccer players will reach. And I've never seen in Europe or I think in the US this level of activism. I've been so impressed this spring by the Black Lives Matter activism. Now, in the US, you'd sort of expect it. The NBA is a largely African-American league. They're living in the country where the Black Lives Matter movement is happening. You know, the um, NBA has high levels of, uh, you know, player power to move clubs, high levels of free agency. That's grown in all sports. So the result is that the talent gains power. So you see that very strongly. And basketball and soccer are the most kind of talent-based team sports. You know, the NFL is less so because, you know, if you weigh 300 pounds uh, and you get yourself pretty fit, you can be a useful football player, you can be a useful lineman. 
but soccer and basketball are so much about skill that if you have that skill, you know, the, the club needs you. And so the players have this power. And if the club treats them badly, they'll just move to another club. So it's very hard for owners who might want to stop the basketball players to do so. And you've seen these basketball players use their power. Now in Europe, I find it more surprising because soccer players had always been quite docile. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have the tradition so much of their speaking to the media as you do in American sports. And Black Lives Matter was happening, you know, in another continent. And European soccer is much less black than the NBA. Mm -hmm. And yet you've had not just individual players like uh, Marcus Thuram or Raheem Sterling uh, making very strong anti-racist statements. You have white players joining them. You have entire teams taking the knee, you know, from Liverpool to Borussia Dortmund. Mm -hmm. And I've, 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 I was very moved by it. And I was also trying to understand why, you know, because there've been great causes in the past that soccer players didn't get on board for, certainly not at this level. And my sense, having speaking, spoken to people, is it's partly an education effect. This is a much better educated generation of Europeans than has ever existed. Huh. And so the, the academies uh, in soccer have also been given an educational function in the last 10 or 20 years. They've actually had to um, send the kids to school because, you know, by some estimates, 97% of kids in Premier League academies are never going to play professional soccer. Yeah. So you have this duty to these kids. You know, the Messiah in Barcelona, half the 18-year-olds go to university. So even the ones who are in football clubs from age 11 or 12, they get proper educations. Their whole generation has a much better education than before. And so you get, you know, wonderfully um, thoughtful, impressive, articulate figures. I think Marcus Rashford, the Manchester United forward, who right. has actually had a winning campaign to get the government to keep providing free school meals yeah, to poor that, kids. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. Amazing. I mean, this guy is 22 yeah. years old. Yep. Yeah. And he, you know, he meets business leaders. He gave a, a very uh, powerful interview to the Financial Times, my newspaper, the other day. Um, he's made a very convincing case for free school meals. He's won the argument. I mean, how often does that happen in politics? Yep. I can't think of a 22-year-old soccer player in the past doing something like that. It seems also, Simon, part and parcel of is a new generation and a model for what the coach looks like, right? So in other words, th this is happening when um, Klopp is the coach of Liverpool. He comes from a very different mindset and, as you say, sort of a generational thing. And Mourinho in the same way, and, and you could go through a number of them. Then one might imagine, uh, and I could be completely wrong, but Sir Alex Ferguson would have reacted to his players doing, you know, taking a knee, for example. So it seems that also it's coming from the coaching ranks, it would seem, and perhaps even from more enlightened ownership, maybe in the past. Do you think those also contribute to it, or? Um, I, I think you're doing Ferguson down. I mean, he yeah, okay. He was an authoritarian, which is he had this very old-fashioned style of leadership that sort of died out. Right. He was a very political guy. I mean, he um, he always campaigned for Labour in British elections. Ah, okay. He himself. Okay. I mean, he came from an older Labour tradition. His parents had both been trade union stewards. So he believed in that kind of um, union labor tradition very strongly. But yeah, I mean, I think it is a different uh, generation of coaches. I mean, they, they too are more educated. They too are less kind of um, authoritarian and instinctively uh, brutal. Uh, I had this Zoom interview with Arsene Wenger for this piece that I'm writing about him for the Financial Times coming up. Uh -huh. And he said, you know, the new mode of, of coaching is... is 
you, you can't tell the players what to do. You know, they earn 8 million euros. Um, they have entourages. They have agents. They, they decide. He said, what you do is you try and persuade and convince. So you speak to the players like adults. You, you see that with Klopp. You see that with Guardiola. Uh, you don't, I mean, I think Mourinho is still a little bit old style. that He manipulates his players and he treats them as means rather than ends a bit more. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, the the shouting stuff that that has very much faded out. As for owners, I mean, the owner is is a more prominent figure in American sports typically, and there, as we know, a lot of these guys are Trump supporters. So I think that is a more um, more of a political conflict. I think Black Lives Matter in Europe is fairly consensual the vast majority of, of Europeans would support it, as in fact, the majority of, of Americans do. But, you know, for people close to Trump, like some of the uh, team owners in American sports, I, I don't know how they have made that, made that decision. Well, you also have in the United States, the unfortunate case of a president who's giving voice to, um, as you say, a minority of, of views, uh, view that they don't have the right to express their opinions regarding uh, mistreatment of, um, African Americans. So, you know, it, it's been augmented in this case, not just by the owners, but by a president who wants to divide and, and distract. Well, so, and the NFL was on board with him, and um, yeah. you know, they, they also were. They they forced Kaepernick out. I mean, the NFL is a more authoritarian organization because the the talent is more dispensable, except you know the the quarterback and the running back, a couple of players. Well, also they, there's not the same free, freedom of movement yeah, like there, like there is in in you in 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 uh, European soccer, right? You know, you sort of, it's up, you move. And there's, there's no, there's no all these rules about how compensation has to be paid once your contract is up, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's, I mean, as you might imagine, EU labor laws is, is way more uh, flexible for, for the worker, as it were. And in this case, yeah, the, football, the NBA, right? the NBA and Major League Baseball have high mobility, but the NFL players are literally dispensable because their careers are very brief. You're on the scrap heap and they find some other, you know, six foot seven guy. Mm. You know, um, I have a question, and this is a loaded question. I, I, I suspect I know what your answer is going to be, but you've interviewed, what, hundreds of, of athletes, I imagine. And um, I remember in the novel by Tom Ford, the sports writer, he, he, the, the, the narrator says that everyone wants to interview and they look up to athletes, pro athletes, as being these interesting characters. And he says they're not. They're actually, it's a horrible interview because they've spent their entire lives dedicated to their sport, which they do well but don't have many interests outside. Um, I, I've always found that difficult to believe. I'm curious what your perspective on this is. And, you know, and sometimes when I do see tennis players, for example, I do imagine that can be the case. But I'm curious, what's your sense of how interesting, how lively, how intellectually curious are, is a majority of athletes? I mean, I don't try and interview the majority of athletes. I try and interview people who are willing to be interviewed and who I think will be interesting. So, for example, I was at Atletico Madrid and they set up loads of interviews and they were really helpful. And I got Antoine Griezmann and he's a great footballer. So you think, you know, wow, you got an interview with Griezmann. The guy spent 15 minutes trying to say nothing, answered every question with cliches. It just wasn't worth it. I don't mm. know if he's a bright man or not, but he just didn't want to show that to me. So it was. But he has good. But he has good hair, Simon. Really good hair. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Yeah, he, he's a visual <laughs> performer, and so I mean. Does the player want to communicate? So I had an interview with Roger Federer last year, which I found very gratifying. I wouldn't say he's the most interesting person I've ever met, but they get more interesting as they get older. 
he was a very kind and pleasant man. He was willing to talk and think and answer my questions. I think as they get older, like with most of us, and they get life experience outside their sport, because, you know, nowadays they're forced into kind of professionalism from that age 12. They're really preparing for professionalism. So they, they don't have a very broad view. I mean, this friend of mine who was a professional soccer player for a while, he said, don't think of them as stupid. He said they are encouraged to be yeah. focused, no, monomaniac. Yeah. Right. Mono, yeah. They show an interest in other stuff. The people around them say, don't, don't. You just play, you just play the sport. And so some of them are interesting, but I also think it's, it's misconceived to go to the, the footballer and say, so what do you think about uh, the, the, the Syrian civil war? I mean, why <laughs> should he have knowledge or interest in that? I think yeah. it's much more interesting to ask them about their craft and in a, not in a way that you're trying to get a headline about he dissed his teammate, but to get them talking about the game, I think that can be very interesting because that is something often that they have interesting thoughts on. I, I, I don't see, I mean, Marco van Bosse, who is a great Dutch footballer, one of my heroes, he said, I don't see what I have to say is more interesting than what a carpenter has to say. And I think that's right. You know, we, we don't yeah, yeah. go into the carpenters. I think Klopp said something. They asked, I forgot what the question was. They asked him about something at some point, And he said, that, you shouldn't be asking me that question. I'm a football coach. That's no, those aren't things that, you know, my opinion isn't any better or worse than anybody yeah, else's. He was, he was asked about the COVID measure. Yeah, yeah, I guess it was COVID. You know, the, um, you mentioned the academies, Simon, you know, the, the, uh, I think which is one of the things that in North America, people, many people don't understand how that system operates, and particularly the well-known ones, you know, the Ajax Academy, Barca, Real Madrid has one. But, and so for the, for, for the kids who get into those, and, and as you described, they're looked after in many different ways. They're, they're educated, as you said, half of them at the time of 18 are prepared and do go off to university because at Barcelona, yeah, yeah, at Barcelona at least, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and I guess there are quite variations within the academies, um, but the the underbelly for the kids uh, who don't get into those academies who are trying to struggle through the, the the back streets and the back alleys of in Argentina or Colombia or any South American country per se, not all of them would come through, you know, be a product of that environment, but many of them. Um, you want to talk about that odyssey for them and what that's like and then what happens when they get to Europe is there a different reaction is it a harder acclimation are they treated with the same deference and respect you want to talk a little bit about that odyssey uh, well FIFA rightly or wrongly has made it very difficult for clubs to sign players from another country until they're 18 so you know there was a lot of worry a decade or two back about young Africans being brought in this terrible metaphor as slaves. I don't know whether they meant it as a metaphor or not. It was like kind of slave labor, African kids are being brought to Europe and then they get rejected from the academy and they're left with nothing. I, I never liked that rhetoric. I also think it simplified uh, it into a bad thing that African kids were brought over because for many of them, this was a very important life chance. You know, a lot of Africa at the time, certainly people were on a dollar a day. And if you can get to Europe and have a shot, maybe at being a professional footballer, and if it doesn't work out, well, maybe you can make some kind of life in a much richer society. So I, I've never thought it was entirely bad that, that some kids were brought over, but anyway, it doesn't happen much anymore. So the good Latin American player will typically come to, to Spain or Italy or Portugal 
after the age of 18 and finds those societies, those are often kind of arrival societies for Latin American players, finds it quite recognizable. You know, the language is not complicated. The, um, um, the way of living is not vastly different. And so I think it's not the hardest of landings, but of course the kids who get, you know, brought to Europe or the young players who get brought to Europe post 18, those are already the elite. Those are not, we're not talking about the tens of thousands of kids you're talking about mm -hmm. who came up from the back alleys and had a brief spell thinking that they might be a contender and then it never happened. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, they'd neglected their education. Speaking of scandal in, in sports, the issue of performance enhancing drugs, um, obviously affects all sports, um, in particular endurance, bicycling, um, running. Uh, is there going to come a time when we will just come to accept this? I mean, it, it, it are, is science and the anti-doping regime just uh, wasting their time in trying to detect this? Are they fighting a losing battle? I mean, it's hard to know. I believe that speeds in the Tour de France have fallen, which suggests that uh, doping controls are having some effect. I think that cycling has been ruined by it because so many people who won the Tour de France have been turned out to have been cheating that viewers just don't trust it anymore. So I live in France and the Tour de France is much, much less of a cultural phenomenon than it was when I arrived here 18 years ago. So I think there is a problem for sports where it really is just endurance or just strength because that can be so easily doped. Now, do tennis players or soccer players use doping? I suspect that many do, but it's not enough, you know, because these games are not just about endurance. In, in yeah. fact, yeah. in soccer, you don't need superhuman levels of endurance, although the physical demands have got much higher these last 10 years. So, you know, uh, can you be Iniesta or Messi through drugs? Obviously not. So I think the, the skill sports have come out of this best because if you found out that one of the best footballers in the world had taken drugs, it still wouldn't invalidate that he's an incredible footballer. Yeah, yeah. Let me pick up on that tangent on, on, the, uh, on the Tour de France. And, you know, I'm sitting in Colombia now, and I'm, I'm astounded by how closely people watch it here. Why? Because Colombians are some of the best in the world. And I wonder, just as, a, as they say, a tangential thought, perhaps maybe some of the attention has gone down in France because it's, it's, not, it's not France's race anymore. I mean, the, the French aren't, aren't turning out in any great way in terms of being on the podium and the like. And I suppose, you know, if you don't have winners uh, in, your own, in your own country's Grand Prix, you might lose a little interest. And maybe in the countries where their, their athletes are doing well, the interest is going up, no? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's always the redistribution of interest depending on national champions. So right. Britain playing a huge right. Tour de France country. Yeah. However, uh, the general uh, trend is downwards. Yeah. I think Lance Armstrong was disastrous for the tour because he uh, won it what, seven times. And it turned out that it was all just fake. And that has happened to other champions as well. So, you know, you watch a guy come over the finish on the Champs-Élysées in a yellow jersey and everyone is thinking... When is he going to be exposed for doping? <laughs> so, yeah. I think it's very hard for cycling to get past this. And sports do die. You know, I think rowing died in Britain as a massive spectator sports in the 19th century when it was, uh, it became associated with bribery. 
So is there, so I mean, you're, you're obviously a sports aficionado, a lover of, of the sheer athleticism, the beauty, um, the fandom. Uh, are there any sports, if you dare say, that you don't like, that you don't appreciate, that you just don't quite get? Barring, obviously, curling, say. No, 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 no. No, no, from a, as a Canadian standpoint, we're going to keep oh, yeah, going no, out of it. Okay, I can. Yeah, yes, when you, the more yeah, you, you watch it, no, no, when you watch it, uh, and see, it, there's, there's, it's, <laughs> I can't believe I'm defending curling, but the reality of it is there's, there's a lot more than, than meets the eye when you first see it. Let me just say that in defense okay. of curling. Okay, so. That's true of all sports. It's always, it's always yeah. more complex and interesting, and so I, I used to love cricket, and cricket is a fantastically subtle and exciting and wonderful game, but I wouldn't dare explain that to any of you because it just wouldn't work when I, I was lucky enough that when I was 10 we moved to the US for a year uh, my dad had a sabbatical at Stanford spent a wonderful year there and it was just the right age so I, I fell for baseball I fell for American football I, I think I got those sports I, I learned to appreciate and love them and the one that I never got was basketball I'm afraid yeah. I, just, I just don't see it because that's the rising sport in Europe Right now, uh, not rising very fast. I mean, Europe has one number one sport, and then it has a lot of kind of uh, second tier sports, of which basketball has been one for a long time. I mean, you know, I was just in Barcelona for a couple of weeks. That's been a basketball society for a long time. I mean, yeah. Very much as a second sport. The people yeah, but, but a second sport, but in, in you know, my time living in, in Spain, I, I was, and it was it was a number of years, a couple of decades ago, but you could see it rising and rising. Um, so it is, yeah, I would, I would agree with you, second sport, but surprisingly um, strong second sport, at least in Spain. That was, that was my impression anyway. Maybe. And Italy. Yeah. Italy has always had a, lo a long history of supporting uh, uh, basketball as well, no? Yeah, I mean, basketball has always had a place in Europe. Uh, it's partly because of the early exchange with the U.S., immigrants going back and forth. Yeah. Uh, so there's countries like Lithuania, like Spain, uh, Britain, by contrast, doesn't have a basketball tradition at all. I mean, nobody, nobody knows about it. So it, it's very much hit and miss per place. Rising, I don't know. I mean, you know, we've, we've had basketball for a long time. So I, I just don't see anything really upsetting the existing order of football and then nothing for a while and then nothing for a while and then a few sports. You know, it's interesting because if I use the analogy to Canada, hockey, 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 and then hockey. Um, and at least when I was very active in youth football or soccer in Canada a couple of decades ago, I guess, when my kids were playing, um, at one point, even back then, there had been more youth participation in football, soccer than in hockey. And everybody was amazed. And I think that number has just gone up and up and up. Um, and so, I mean, you can't, there's, you know, I understand how having lived in Europe for a number of years and going there and still teaching there every year, the predominance of, of football, but it wasn't any more predominant than hockey was in Canada. And yet you see, and basketball now in Canada, right? Things have definitely chipped away uh, in the inroads. You know, they made huge inroads in, in, with respect to the, the sports consciousness of, of Canada. So I, wonder, I, don't, I don't think, as you, I guess as you, pointed out with rolling in England, I, I don't think anything is set in stone, no? It's not set in stone, and who knows what will happen in the future, but in the TV age, soccer seems to win. Yeah. And you see soccer ousting sumo in Japan, you see it 
ousting to some degree baseball in the US, um, you know, as you say, hockey in Canada. I mean, American kids don't play gridiron football anymore. That, that's on a playing level. Americans still watch gridiron, but they don't play it. Uh-huh. I mean, there's less than a million kids who play gridiron. There's, you know, there's only 25 million Americans who say they play soccer. So um, in this era, soccer seems to win because partly because it works on TV, it's safe, and it's, it's unisex. When Stefan Shemansky and I wrote the first edition of our book, Soconomics, 2009, we thought, you know, it's logical that the US and Japan, yeah. you know, big rich yeah. countries, loads of people playing soccer, they're going to catch up. They're just going to learn how to play soccer from the Europeans, and they haven't. And it's amazing to me, the last four World Cup winners have all been Western European countries, a different Western European country each time. Mm-hmm. And so Western Europe, five, 5% of the world's population, we just dominate soccer. We're just by far the best. And it's because we know how to play, because soccer is a game that you play in your head, as my hero Johan Krauss said. It's about thinking, organization, tactics, geometry. And the Americans and the Japanese, they play, but they don't know how to play. And it seems, you know, even in the TV age, it's very hard to catch that up. And you start to learn age six. I mean, I see with my kids now who are playing in France, they just get really clever coaching, uh, which is partly... That's the issue. That's the issue. So in my experience, it's youth coaching. That's, that's where the systems fall, can't, can't equal anywhere, come close to equaling what happens in Europe, the level of youth coaching. And that's where the real formation and the, and the second nature thinking comes into, uh, is really inculcated, no? I think so, because, you know, when you're 18 and you come to Europe and you're the best player in, in the U.S., it's, it's too late to learn. Mm. Soccer is a game of decisions. Uh, do I pass left? And mostly it's also where should I stand now? Because, you know, for 88, 89 minutes of a game, you don't have the ball. So the key question is, where do you stand? What, what, what position? How do you close down space when you don't have the ball, open space when you do? Johan Krauf, again, to quote my hero, the man who's the most interesting man in football, will be a big part of my book on Barcelona. He yeah. said you can play a brilliant game without touching the ball. Huh. It's just good positioning. Simon, do you want to talk a little bit about, you, you touched on women's, of football, um, and that I think probably is be the big impetus for that. And, and I stand corrected, please. It has really has come from North America, all right. And so you had U.S. women's teams at being the best or near the best. Canadian women's in the top five, or certainly in the top handful for a number of years. Um, is that a is that's an interesting evolution because it seems that the Europeans have sort of taken the lead from North America on women's soccer. Yeah, and it's true that when I say Western Europe has won the last four World Cups, that's in men's soccer. In women's soccer, the U.S. is being yeah. extremely yeah. dominant. Right. I mean, has Europe, Europe taken women's soccer from the U.S.? I would say no. I think we've been very late in catching up to the notion that soccer is a gender-equal game. And, you know, for about 50 years, Many of the biggest football associations in Europe, like the English, like the Germans, banned women's soccer. So the English Football Association wouldn't let clubs rent a field for a female game until about 1971. So it's astonishing. I mean, you know, Stefan Szymanski, my co-author on Soconomics, argues that men's soccer should pay women's soccer reparations because they ensure that it couldn't get off the ground in Europe. And so only now is that starting. And of course, you know, it turns out that soccer is a great game and women enjoy it as much as men do and can be as good at it as men are. And so they, the take-up has been sudden and rapid. And the World Cup 
Women's World Cup was here in France last year. Uh, mm. The stadiums were full. The viewing figures in France for the French women's team's group matches were the same as for the French men's team's group matches at the 2018 World Cup. Interesting. Yep. Uh, it was about 10 or 12 million people watching each game. Uh, I went with the kids and friends to the France-US game. You know, full stadium, passion, uh, pain, excitement. I'd never seen that in, in Europe before at that kind of level. And it's only, it's only going up. I mean, what happened in the last preceding 80 years is a shame and a disgrace, the suppression of women's football. And it's coming from way, way behind in terms of financing, et cetera. Mm. But I mean, seven of the eight uh, teams in the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup were European and one was the US, which was much better than everyone else. So Europe is catching up. Yeah, I mean, looking in Canada, as we talked about, you know, hockey crazy and how things are changing. Um, there's a women's soccer player who you would know, Christine Sinclair, who may yeah. be the top scorer of all time in, in women's soccer. I don't know, but certainly up there. And she's won at least one time Athlete of the Year in Canada. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, this is a woman, a woman footballer. Uh, and so the, the, the support, at least uh, the recognition, um, in North America, it would seem, I think, is what we're saying is, is really the one has pushed Europe to get its act together and sort of recognize the, the, the beauty and the prowess and the athleticism uh, and the fairness of, of putting women's football on equal footing, no? Well, you say America's on it. I would say World Cups are a very important device in men's and yeah. women's soccer to kind of get continents to learn from each other. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the previous World Cup was in Germany, which has a very good women's team. So they, so they look at the U.S. and think, well, how come they have this great women's team? Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be exciting if we could get that? And so then mm. you, you just invest the same resources as you do in, in men's soccer, at least at, at youth level, you start to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's still tremendous inequality. Simon, I want to ask you one question, uh, another question about, you mentioned the oligarchs earlier on in the conversation about loyalty to club, regardless of who's owning it, right? When the oligarchs come in, um, uh, they, they, there's still the fan loyalty, right? And so I guess one of the first ones that you think of in, in English football was uh, Chelsea um, the, uh, and the owner from Russia, Abramovich. Um, Abramovich. Yeah. Um, but but he, he, has, he may have been the first, but he's not the only one. There's been a huge changeover. There have been um, folks from the Middle East now are owning Thailand at, at Leicester. There's been, obviously, American sports conglomerates have come in. How has that changed, the, and, and not just in the UK, elsewhere uh, in Europe, how has that changed the nature of the sport and um, and why are these people buying these clubs? Obviously, one might assume there's a financial incentive. Are there others? Are there political? Is it a, is it a, is a bit of putting on a, a better face than they may have had you know, um, for other things they may have done in their life and sort of you know, uh, spruce, spruce up their own image a little bit? What, what are all the factors there? I think you have to distinguish two different kinds of owners. One is the oligarchs and sheikhs, like Abramovich, like the Abu Dhabi royal family that um, bought Manchester City, the Saudis who wanted to buy Newcastle but were pretty much discouraged this summer from doing so because of the bad publicity, the Qataris who bought Paris Saint-Germain. And these are, you know, mega rich uh, families or uh, essentially states, you know, families that own states who don't really care about losing a bit of money on soccer. I mean, who cares if you have, you know, billions of dollars, if you drop a couple of hundred million on a soccer club, because 
you get so much fun for it. You get status, you can wash your reputation, you can, mm. everyone wants to meet you. It, it's just great if you're Abu Dhabi or Qatar. Uh, why wouldn't you do it? You, don't, you really don't care about the money you lose. And then you get the mostly American profit-oriented owners who have come out of American sports, like the Glazer family uh, from the NFL who bought Manchester United, like John Henry, who owns uh, Liverpool, Stan Kroenke, who owns Arsenal. And these guys are in it for the money. They've seen in American sports, you know, American sports have uh, been occasionally profitable for owners for a long time. And they thought, well, how can we grow? Well, American sports don't really internationalize much. They, they don't build a foreign market successfully. The one sport with a big international market is soccer. So they thought, right, we'll buy English football clubs and they have an international market. And these guys are uh, very profit oriented. So they're kind of the opposite of the Abramovich's. Abramovich wants to put money into soccer. The Glazers want to take money out of soccer. Hmm. Simon, you've been very um, generous with your time. I, it is, again, a COVID moment. And we're all, I think, working our way through as many uh, streaming movies as we can. I'm curious. Now, what are the three best sports movies that you've ever seen? That's a very good question. I mean, <laughs> one, is, one is definitely Moneyball. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm going to get things wrong and forget things, but Escape to Victory is, is a bad film, but it's very compelling when you're a 10-year-old kid, which is when I watched it, which is about a group of soccer players, including Pelé. They had a lot of soccer players in it, so the acting isn't great. Led by <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Oh, wow. that's, a, that's, that's a can't miss right there. Oh, right. <laughs> that didn't get an Oscar? <laughs> it's kind of camp classic. It did not get an Oscar. I mean, I, it has probably some of the worst acting in the world, but it, it's a story of good versus bad. They beat the German team and they, you know, uh, they decide not to escape because they want to win the match. It's very silly, but it's fun. What other great um, movies? Chariots of Fire, or yeah, in, Chariots in, of Fire. You got it. Yeah, I yeah. watched that again when I was about ten, eleven years old, and um, my granny took me. And that is a beautiful film with this unforgettable music track as well. Yeah. yeah. All right. So while we're playing your favorites, and before we let you go, um, not with you know, and not including the work that you've done, which has been spectacular, which is obviously one of the reasons why we want to speak with you. Um, is there a better book? better book on soccer than the, the one that Eduardo Galeano wrote a number of years ago, Soccer and Sun and Shadow. I've only read bits of Galeano, I have to admit. So I'm, ah. not, I'm not an expert on that. I would typically say that the best soccer book ever is Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch, yeah. 1992, which is about being a fan, which he bases on equally great great American book, Frederick, Frederick Exley's Fans Notes, which is about him being a New York Giants football fan. So those are two books that I would, I mean, I, I have a list of about five classics. Another is C.L.R. James' Beyond the Boundary, about growing up in Trinidad and, you know, the meaning of cricket and race. Uh, that mm. is one of the great. And then Roger Kahn has this great baseball book about uh, Brooklyn. Yep. I can't remember the title. That, that, that's a, you know, Michael Lewis's Moneyball. I'm, I'm just running through a quick list of some of the best soccer book, the best sports books ever. And Gordon Forbes, who I've got to know because I wrote about his book, uh, A Handful of Summers, about playing tennis on the, on the tour, was kind of amateur, but they got paid under the table in the 1950s. Yeah. A Handful of Summers is a beautiful book about youth and, and travel and tennis. Well, Simon... We're going to have to, when we, when we publish this podcast, we'll, always, we'll tease it, of course. And so it's only fair, given the book that you're working on, the history of Barcelona, to get your 
impression of the contretemps, as it were, between Messi and the you know and the and the club of his of his love and his life, Barcelona, this summer. You, what inside, or what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've, I've just come back from Barcelona. The, the book's not really a history; it's a kind of how the workplace works. You know, I'm trying to see it from the inside. The club's giving me great access. And as I, you know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of people who work at the club, you know, everyone from players to nutritionists to doctors to psychologists, business people. And as I progressed, I quickly came to the realization that the real presidents of the club is Lionel Messi. He's the most powerful person in the club. I mean, it's a club with many different currents. It's like a very vibrant uh, democracy. So nobody has absolute power. So he often doesn't get his way. But he's the person in the club everyone is afraid of. Uh, the idea that outsiders often have that he has a weak personality uh, is completely false. He's a very kind of tough figure. And Messi wants, you know, I, I asked his ex-president, you know, what does he want? And the ex-president said he wants football, which means he wants Barcelona to play top level exactly in the way that he wants them to. Mm -hmm. And so if, if that doesn't happen, he gets very angry. He'd rather not have power. He'd rather that the people around the club made the decisions about who to buy and sell but since they do that badly he he gets very angry and upset and so Messi had just had it you know the level had been dropping um the the physical uh the physical demands of football have gone up and those of Barcelona have remained pretty static and he just wants to play good football he only got a couple of years of top level football left and he felt that rightly that Barcelona can't provide him with that and so he just said, I want to leave. But unfortunately, he had had bad legal advice. The lawyer had kind of glossed over the fact that he had to announce his departure by June 10th. And uh, Messi announced it in August. And uh, FC Barcelona said, uh, tough luck, Sonny. You have to stay another year. So this summer, he will face that same decision next summer. And, and one interesting thing is that with fatherhood becoming a much more hands-on activity for kind of his generation of men, you know, he's 33 for millennials and uh, the fathers are much more active than in previous generations and that's true even of of athletes so you saw after the Wimbledon final Federer and Djokovic you know the two best tennis players in the world at that point pretty much saying well I hope to continue playing tennis but it depends on my my wife you know allowing me and I've got to spend more time with my family etc yeah. so they're reasoning as fathers and Messi does as well and so when Messi told his family look I, I want Want to leave Barcelona he said that it was a drama they all cried you know the kids and the wife all cried right and so I think for him that coming next summer that's going to be a big factor in his decision you know do I drag my kids and wife away from this place the only place I've ever lived where they're happy but in football terms I mean there are clearly better teams than uh, Barcelona this year yep. does he want to play for a declining team in his last couple of years yeah I was surprised that the way that legal that went down it seems like he could have without reading the contract, he could have triggered the clause and then still been open to negotiate something different if he wanted to stay with them. But um, I guess that's not the way, that's not the way it happened. Always hire a good lawyer is the message. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're speaking to the choir there, Ken's a lawyer, so. Yeah, and no, and actually at some point earlier in my career, I was working on some of the football transfer business between Argentina and Uruguay. And there was a reason why they were going through Uruguay. And I can't, of course, remember what the legal reasons were and tax reasons, but from, you know, from a fairly early on looking at that bit of business thinking, well, this is, this is a tough little business for these kids uh, yeah. and, and the trading and selling of, of these kids, you know, who couldn't defend themselves, you know, legal. I mean, they obviously had some representation, but I'm talking about kids who certainly weren't at, at the stratosphere level and were, were 
were trying to work themselves up to that. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, well. Listen, Simon, this has been great. We really, really appreciate your yeah, time. Yeah, this has been amazing. I think we could just keep talking and talking. Yeah, no, this is this is what this is made for. Besides the podcast, it's made for a very enjoyable evening for me. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You asked very good questions. Yeah, yeah really Simon. One last question, Simon. I mean, I know you know you're not. So, well, maybe you can say this. What's the difference? What you what team do you do you have a favorite team? Your childhood team that you know that's your your fail safe and all else goes wrong in your life or your world one day you always have that one team that fandom team uh maybe this is a small country thing but it's mostly holland it's the national team so that's ah, okay. when i really kind of feel like a fan is during during world cups when holland qualifies anyway and i have it somewhat with ajax less so and i have it really with all dutch teams who play in europe i always support the dutch team playing in europe so Paris Eindhoven won a match in um, Norway tonight, and I'm, I'm chuffed about that. So that, those are my feelings. I never managed to develop any feelings for any English team, I'm afraid. Well, keep an eye out next World Cup for Colombia. There's some in interesting young players, a lot of whom you're seeing in, in Europe now. In fact, the, the Hamas thing, and talk about the, the, the commercial value uh, outside of Europe for these players. I mean, it's in Colombian television and, you know, the ESPN, the, the Colombian version and Fox Sports down here. Wherever the Colombian uh, star players are playing in Europe, those games get shown on television here. So all of a sudden, now, you're now seeing uh, the Turkish league play because Falcao plays in the Turkish league. Every single Everton game, I think that's, that they've played so far this year, is, um, is being shown. It was a little bit last year because of Yerimina, but now with James Rodriguez, um, you know, you're seeing all that. That's not the uh, – and then – you know, you'll see a lot of Juventus because Cuadrado plays at Juventus. So the, the worldwide power, of, the commercial power of football to bring in dollars worldwide is really quite remarkable to, you know, to what they do in Europe. Yeah, although all the clubs are losing money with the coronavirus, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much, Simon. Enjoy your evening. Thank you. I really appreciated this. Look forward to listening, guys. Thanks Thank a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, Chris, I think that interview just stands by itself. I don't think it needs any more commentary. Why don't you tell the audience what they've been listening to? They've been listening to Two Gringos with Questions.